Hello, and welcome once again to the weekly inebriated scriptural exegesis and source study, or WISEASS. Tonight, we're still covering the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, week 4 of 5, we're going to be going through Mark 9.30... Uh, <laughs> from Mark 9.30 from Mark 9, uh, through Mark 13.37 tonight, and uh, whatever parallel material we can find from the other Synoptic Gospels. And we're not going to cover it all uh, because it's just too much. So we've picked out some of our pa- favorite bits, and we're going to go through those. Okay, so what are you guys drinking tonight? I am drinking I'm drinking a beer, the name of which I would never apply to the authors of the Synoptic Gospels. And it is Three Philosophers. <laughs> Have you ever had it before? No, it's too strong for me. I can't handle it. Oh. I'm, I'm really trying. But Did you learn from my mistakes last week to keep the alcohol content low on your beer for this? I uh, I really like Three Flaws. I'm drinking it very slowly. It's strong Belgian blend. Strong dark it's, ale. It's a quadruple, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, goodness. Quad, quadruple. So, uh, Abby, what are you drinking? Uh, estoy tomando Harpoon IPA. Si, bueno. Si, bueno. Uh, I was bueno. expecting. I, I was expecting like some sort of Spanish beer. I, was, I don't. I'm no. I was expecting you to say like <laughs> Modelo Especial or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, well, I, my my license is expired, so I can't go get. I can only. My selection is limited. I still get carded for some reason. Mm-hmm. You think that expired would still be okay to show how old you are? I know, I don't get it. Like, just because you can't drive doesn't mean you've suddenly started aging backwards. <laughs> I would assume most places probably would just go ahead and accept it. Yeah. A well, lot. No, I've been addicted. Yeah, but you look like you're 16. Mm, okay. Well, anyways, I am drinking a rogue American Amber Ale, and it almost foamed over on me when I opened it. Hmm. Well. It, um, it's... It's beer. I don't think you want to admit to, like, getting foam all over yourself. That's a little embarrassing. Especially when you're starting off sober. Well, I didn't even shake it up. I just set it on the table and it foamed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's okay. I am drinking a Hobgoblin Dark Ale. Nice. Pretty good. It's trying to be Halloween-ish. Nice. That is, that is apt. It's apt! <laughs> I am having a Bard's Original Sorghum Malt Beer, which is gluten-free and interesting. <laughs> did, did, didn't you listen to Science Sword Up? He said it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> interesting is just a polite word for terrible. The problem was I listened to that episode after I actually had a six-pack. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, it's like, how was your date? Uh, it was interesting. <laughs> It's it's, it's I, alcohol. I'm How's a, the Bible going? I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of hops, and obviously this doesn't have much hops because you know being gluten free and everything has no wheat or barley or rye or oats or anything else that I usually like in my beer. But it's a beer in it. Okay, so that's everybody who's drinking. All right, so the first one we're doing tonight is uh, The Strange Exorcist, Mark 9, verses 38 to 41. Abby, tell us why you picked this one out. Um, 
Okay, this had an interesting line. Um, there's the um, the very famous phrase in 940, for he who is not against us is on our side. That's not the famous phrase. That's the like the one that we're like, that's kind of cool, but I don't remember hearing it. That's the opposite. That's the one you don't picture George Bush saying. It's it very much not a, very, a bushy kind of expression. So, well, the grammar's yeah. correct for one. <laughs> For he who is not against us is for us. It's a, I, it's a very inclusivist message. I'm actually kind of surprised to hear Jesus yeah. saying it. So, of course, it makes you think of the when he says the exact opposite. <laughs> right. Which is in Matthew 12.30. Uh, is that also in a Luke 11.23? Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, where in a different context, Jesus is saying, he who is not with me is against me. Yeah. Maybe he got bitter as he got closer to the you know the end of his life. He got more cynical. Is it a different context in Matthew or just Luke? I think it's a different context in both of them. Okay. And, 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 and in Matthew twelve thirty, it's in the context of the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, which is something that's in a different pericope altogether in Mark. Ah. Uh, okay. And Luke. Luke, it's just like a verse shorter. It's it's also in the 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 same the house divided and the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit stuff. It's in okay. Because hmm. remember in Mark it was the house divided thing and then the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit thing, right? Mm-hmm. We covered that a while back, but so it's it is in a different pericope in in Matthew and Luke, but it is also like the same phrase, okay. but. I don't know. I can't oh, make wait, sense of it wait, one way or the other. Wait, which Luke which Luke verse was it? Um eleven twenty three. Okay. It also appears in nine forty nine. Um in again in the same context as Mark involving the man casting out demons and Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he that is not against you is for you. That's Luke nine fifty. Yes. Which is actually exactly parallel to the Markin material. Yeah, so Luke has it twice. Once one way and once the other oh. way. Okay, I got it. Luke has it, yeah. In both, Luke has both versions of this expression. And then Mark has one and Matthew has the other. I guess if, 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 you, take, if you try to mash it all together in a, a harmonious topologist kind of approach, you could say that there are two... Like circles in the Venn diagram, and they do not overlap. <laughs> there is the circle, he who is for you, and the circle, he who is against you. <laughs> and there is no one in between. I don't know. <laughs> but they contradict, because it's saying the people who are not against you, either they're on your side, according to one saying, or they're, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of cutting out the middle ground, doesn't it? Like, it's saying, on one hand, those who aren't with you are against you, and on the other hand, those who are, like, I don't know. I had it yeah, they, they but both, it's kind of cutting out the middle. Like, there is no middle yeah. ground. It is, but they do it in different ways. It's like right. the, the proverbial squeezing of the middle. The middle's <laughs> getting hollowed out, which, no, never mind. No, no, not <laughs> hollowed out, just... Yeah. just <laughs> You're not allowed to be agnostic when it comes to, uh, apparently, casting out demons. Either you're doing it in Jesus' name, or you're on the side of the devil, or something mm-hmm. like that. 
So the opposite. I think, does that mean the devil can cast out demons? I think what we're seeing here is Jesus starts out with this inclusivist thing, like he who is not against us is for us. He starts out with this like inclusivist language. And then over time, as the church gets a hold of the gospel message and mutates into this hierarchy, the message flips and it becomes an exclusivist message. He who is not with us is against us. I think that's what we're seeing happen here. No room for Switzerland in the Bible. (laughs) That's all I got. Insert the George Bush quote at some point. Either you're with us, either you love freedom, and with nations which embrace freedom, or you're with the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew that he was actually being biblical, kind of. The next uh, segment that we're going to talk about is Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. Warnings of temptations. And I threw this one out here, so I've got to explain why it's on the list. I think it's on the list because it's just so f***ing amazing, just appalling material. Like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, I don't usually say this, but dear listener, go read this for yourself. Mark Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. It's crazy. And they've got everything. They've got worms that don't die and unquenchable fire. <laughs> and I think possibly the first ever mention of eternal punishment in the Bible uh, because oh, yeah. the the quote that they're kind of like quote mi- that Jesus is seemingly quote mining from Isaiah 66 and uh, where else where's the fire that is not quenched I don't know where that comes from I think that's all Isaiah 66 24 oh, this is also in the Gospel of Thomas I'm almost sure that's not where it's where he's getting it from though because it's in both Mark and Matthew yes and Luke. Yeah, but actually, no. The the worms and fire are not in Luke. Oh, yeah, that's oh, not. It's just the... The messed up shit's not in The Luke. other... No, no, it's, it's messed up in Luke, too, but it's messed up in a different <laughs> way. Because that's when we get to the next part, where it's like, we'll be salted with fire, whatever that means. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you do to make it salty again? And this is this is where you're like, wait, salt is, is just N-A-C-L. It can't not be salty. <laughs> Like, salt always has the property of being salty. It's what it is. I'm sorry, your salt has gone bad. (laughs) It can clump. You left your salt out of the fridge. Your salt has gone off. It's It's salt. It's salt. All you can do to salt, really, is try to combine it with something else, which is hard to do because it's really stable. Or you could split it into its constituent elements, sodium and chlorine, and then it's not salt anymore. (laughs) Hey, so what does it mean to have salt in yourselves? <laughs> I don't know. Have what salt it is. in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's, it's saying you should be good at preserving meat. <laughs> hey. I don't know. I don't know what it's Come saying. On, that could work. You know, I, I think meat. this part is, is supposed to be metaphor. I well, could be wrong. Metaphor for what? Yeah, exactly. Metaphor for what? Salt is salt. salt preserves? That's all I could well, think of that salt was good for back then. Beef jerky and stuff. Well, there's that thing uh, where... um. In the Old Testament, when they they destroy a city and they salt the earth, so they couldn't grow anything. Yeah, could it be related to that? Salted with fire can mean like they burned it up so much that nothing could ever grow there again. That kind oh, of that oh oh so like instead of instead of salting the earth of uh, like after you conquer a city, you burn it to the ground. Well, actually, when you burn something to the ground, it makes the ground more fertile, though. That's what I'm saying. That's what you burn. They're pretty dumb. Uh, okay, and then there's also the whole thing about cutting off your hands and, and, and gouging out your eyes, right? Which is 
That's a famous bit. Like, what what man can't say that his eyes and hands cause him to sin? I mean, if if Jesus says that looking upon a woman with lust in your heart is adultery, then all the men are, in this movement are going to be walking around without eyes and hands. Cut off your hand because it's better to enter into heaven crippled. So, like, I was always told that when you go to heaven, you get your hand back, but apparently, apparently not. That's what I was told. <laughs> you committed a sin, right? You don't get that back. You don't want that. So it's a metaphor, right? I guess one the, actually does that. The lesson here is to only masturbate with one hand so that when you repent, you still have the other hand. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking it's... This is one of the parts that's supposed to be a metaphor. That's what it is. Because Wait. that's convenient. I'm not going Wait. to try and justify it because... Do you mean metaphor or do you mean hyperbole? Mm, I think I mean... Oh. I'm pretty oh. sure metaphor. So like, the, the heaven and hell the, part's metaphor too? See, that's where it gets tricky. And that's why I'm not going to try and defend it. <laughs> is, it a, is it a real worm or metaphorical it, Well, what I'm saying, though, is, is if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, like, if there's something, I think it's supposed to be, or the way that it was explained to me was that if there's something that causes you to sin, then you should just get rid of it. Like, it's not literally, if your hand literally causes you yeah, trouble, it's just like a, then you should lop it off. But it's like, if there's a part of you that causes you to sin, then you should cut it out of your life. So if, it, if it's touching yourself with your hand, then you should just, don't literally cut anything off. Just stop touching yourself with your hand. <laughs> right, you should stop lusting or doing whatever it is that makes you decide to touch yourself with your I, hand. I know that this is not literally about <laughs> masturbation, but I mean, the whole eye-hand thing just kind of, to me, like, it, right. it, it brings me back to my childhood when my eyes and hands led me astray a lot. And I, was, I know that that's, Jesus is not explicitly talking about touching yourself here, but it kind of brings me back to my childhood as a fundamentalist and, and all that all that masturbatory guilt that was involved in that sort of child uh, that sort of environment hey so here's a question that the pharisees would pose to jesus if your wife is causing you to sin what do you do you can't divorce her you kill her well you can't you, you're joined unless she's doing something sexually immoral you just cut her off well you, but you, yeah, you're, you're one her. flesh now he just oh, says right. later on that he's one flesh. You can't cut her off. Jesus how, has some clever. How is she causing? Her, is, is she causing you to sin? How like you're not just doing a missionary <laughs> position? Well, I was thinking more like causing you to steal, like I don't know, cheat. A wife can do all, to, all all sorts of things, or someone around you can cause you to do mischief. And Chaz, sin. do you do you need to talk about something? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you need what? To get something off your, your chest here. This to you? <laughs> what? <laughs> What if reading the Bible makes you drink? Okay, so Obviously it does. I just wanted to point out that this this whole thing is like a big crazy mishmash of like nasty threats and gory images and you know I would I would love to try to hear I would love to find a preacher try to make a homily out of this, you know, try to make <laughs> it work, you know, as a life lesson for today. So, if anyone's aware of that uh uh, go back sure, and sure find one. look through the archives of Church on Mill Road's podcast, see if you can find something. Okay. Okay. So the next one is the pericope that we've arbitrarily numbered 58, which is the rich young man, Mark 10, 17 through 22. Uh, so Jesus is, is on a journey, and this guy asks him, good teacher, and Jesus not like being called good, because if you're good, I guess that means you're God. So... <laughs> So we should all be worried when someone calls us good. Too much faint praise. That. 
Um, so the guy says, what can I do to get eternal life? And Jesus numbers off all these commandments. And in Matthew, uh, it's funny because Jesus says, follow the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? <laughs> <laughs> That's because they didn't have concrete monuments back then to make it clear which it. ones. Yeah, they understood. There were a whole bunch of commandments, and they're all weird, and some of them aren't probably that important. You mean there wasn't the two tablets up in the forum? No, really not. Not for this guy. So uh, whenever the guy says that he follows all the commandments, uh, Jesus said, "Hmm." He smiles at him and thinks, "Well, I got one for you. Uh, give away all your worldly possessions and come follow me." And the guy did not like this because he was very rich. Mm. <laughs> so he was not going to give away all that. I just thought that was very... And, the, and all of them followed the same pattern, really. I, I didn't see too many. Uh, Luke, Luke edits it a little bit, but he doesn't add anything. So they all match pretty well. What I love is that uh, in the, the sermons that I heard, like Jesus didn't like say this, this sell all your possessions, because he thought that it would work. So in in the market version, Jesus felt love for this this young man, right. and and like gives him the one thing that he lacks. Like he's just one more thing, and then you can come join us in the kingdom movement. And but in the sermons that I heard, Jesus like knew that like the next thing he would say would totally screw with this guy's head, and that would be it. <laughs> like, and so the impression that I got listening to the sermons is that when Jesus said sell all you possess, he was basically saying. You know, you can't never, you can't, you're not going to make it. You'll never be part of this movement. You are the one percent. F*** off. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, and in Matthew and Luke, that's basically what he is saying. Right. Saying, which I guess they didn't, they didn't preach this part from Mark where Jesus felt love for this young kid, this right. young ruler. I have to say, the strange thing that I found from this pericope uh, was the idea that Jesus isn't good and. But God is. But Jesus is in Christian theology, or especially evangelical part of this trinity, where he is God. I'm not sure that makes much sense. In Mark and Matthew, I mean, it seems like Jesus is straight up saying, don't, you know, there is right. only one who is good, and I am not claiming to be him. But Right, like, exactly. In, in later theology, they, they're like, oh yeah, this is actually irony. <laughs> like, Jesus knows that he is the God and he's just kind of being ironical at this point in the narrative oh I yeah, thought almost, maybe he was still hiding himself no almost nowhere it says that Jesus is God right isn't that a later thing not it's yet the sun. It, it is it is a later thing like even even the parts where it says Jesus is the Christ it doesn't you know that doesn't imply that he's part of some sort of trinity or He's made of the divine essence in some way, because the he, Jewish understanding of Christ was that he, the Christ, the Messiah, would be a guy, a, a man, a person. Mm. Okay, uh, you guys have anything else on the story of the rich young ruler? I know. The next one is what? What's the next one? Mark ten twenty three to thirty one. Ah, okay. And you picked this one out, Abby. Um, yes, let me figure out why. <laughs> why is this so interesting? Needles and camels, oh my. Jesus is a socialist. I love that Camelon looks a lot like Kamhan, and that the one means rope and the other means camel. That could be. That's like, kind of sweet. They even look, they look even more alike in the Greek. Yeah, so, 
So this is a famous verse about it being easier to... Um, easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter than, heaven? Yeah, than for a rich man to enter heaven. Which I always took as being obviously like hyperbole. Like, you know. Well, what if we make really, really small camels? Or giant needles? <laughs> it sounds like something to take up with Universal Studios for their theme park. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I couldn't find the verse. Um, okay. So there's some early manuscripts, not the earliest ones, but some later ones, where they actually they replace the word camel with the word rope, which, as you said, sound similar. And um, they look a lot alike in Greek. They're like a couple letters yeah. off. Basically one letter off. Oh, yeah. As an I instead of a weird N with a long... Um, Were Matthew and Mark supposedly originally written in Aramaic? Oh no, they're Greek. They're both they're, they're the earliest yeah. actual scripts we have are Greek. Yeah, Jesus oh. spoke in Aramaic. Yeah, okay. And there's the Aramaic in Ezra and Daniel. I think that's all I got. It's, I don't know. Like I heard about this verse earlier, and I thought there was like a big controversy over it, but I think it's it seems settled that it just says camel. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I guess they try to explain it because. They want Jesus to not say anything metaphorical. Can, can I just say that they, they have this made-up thing, this oral tradition that they try to, to use on this? And, and you guys may have heard this if you ever spent a whole lot of time in church as a kid. Is They would they would make up this idea of a um, the eye of the needle as a reference to a certain gate in, into, in Jerusalem. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they would say that, like, you know, for a camel to get into this entrance, it would have to kneel down and humble itself and then kind of scooch in in a very supplicatory manner and that that's really what that's about it's, it's a it's a it's a reference to a particular obscurely named gate in jerusalem which which isn't true and also isn't very transcendent or timeless to like to use this obscure reference that somehow only protestant ministers know about anyway um that's a little bit of bullshit from my childhood thought i'd share that with you it's been sitting in my mind this whole time for no reason yeah I've never heard that one paul what did you find interesting about this about the... What struck you as interesting in this pericope? Are you even in the document right now? I'm sorry, I was... <laughs> Paul said that what struck him as interesting was the bit at the end. <laughs> I know. I didn't have that one open, so I'm like, oh, quick, open Bible Gateway. What did I Close read? Close the porn window, Paul. Come back to us. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> so, at at the end of this whole thing... He goes off on how you're supposed to leave your children, your farms, or whatever, for my name's sake and your family and all of this stuff, right? Is that what? Is that where we are? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's, yeah. That. Okay. And it's sure. like, like I'd heard all of the like what you were saying about the gate and the humbling yourself and all of that ridiculousness whenever I was in the church as well. Thank God I'm not the only but, one. <laughs> but whenever I got to the end of this. Pericope, it was like, wait, we're supposed to leave what now? Like that that part is kind of, you know, left off. Glossed the over. It makes <laughs> it, out. right, right. And then it, I had this sudden like, I was like, oh, okay. So all of a sudden, you know, the whole like nuns and monasteries and all of this this Catholic theology suddenly starts to make sense. It's like, oh, if you want to actually be exalted in heaven or whatever, then you need to give up all of your earthly family and your earthly you know, farms and kids and all of this stuff, um, which I thought was 
To repeat, uh, I think it was Chaz, maybe Paul from last time. That is so cult. That it's like <laughs> yeah. so cultic. Like give up all your yeah. earthly loved ones and come just hang out with our movement. Oh. Yeah, oh. it really is. I'm surprised it wasn't like I make out an, a cashier's check to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jesus with a J. <laughs> uh, what's also interesting about this is Mark ends it with, uh, but many who are first will be last and the last first, which is you know, very, actually I've heard that in a Rage Against the Machine song, which should be no, should be no surprise to anybody. <laughs> um but in Matthew... I dislike them even more now. <laughs> <laughs> now, in Luke and in um, Matthew, right, they... Yeah, okay, in Luke, they will... The, the 12 disciples will sit in heaven on the thrones and, and reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Which I thought was very convenient to have 12 disciples and 12, deci- and 12 tribes. I was surprised that Mark didn't capitalize on that. Ooh. I'd want a frame. <laughs> The guy who gets stuck with Dan is like, oh, god damn it. I love, I love <laughs> that you actually have a particular Israeli tribe picked out that you want. That's just beautiful. And, and, and it's not Judea, seriously. What's wrong with you, Abby? Judea is what you want. Oh. Uh, That's like all, where all the good land is. Anyway. I was thinking of No one should have Benjamites. Benjamites. Paul, Paul, you want, you want the, to be the one tribe that just gets to sit back and take everyone's gifts? That's exactly it. Stuff. Clever Levite. move. Clever move. Yep. No, that's the Levites you're thinking of. That's what Paul said. He said Levi. Yeah, I said oh, Levi. Oh, sorry. They said Benjaminites. I did. I was talking about. Oh. I was saying I wouldn't want Benjamites because they were the ones that raped that one woman, right? And then sent her yeah. off packages. They, they moved up north and they had to. Oh, who cares? So I want Reuben because they have the best sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and the next pericope is. Help me out here. It is Mark ten thirty two through thirty four, and the thing that mostly stood out to me this was the third prediction of yeah. the sort of crucifixion or whatever you want to call it. Passion. Passion. Yeah. Why is it called the passion? Sorry. Because it feels good. Yeah, I maybe because he had a passion for mankind. I don't know. Um. So this yeah. was his his third sort of foreshadowing of what was going to happen to him so far. And what really struck me in this was it seems like every time that he starts talking about this, there becomes this third person tense where he starts referring to himself as the son of man, which I thought was kind of odd. And Abby was... agrees. <laughs> <laughs> that is odd. <laughs> Verse 32 is weirded strangely, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. Just because he's all that. Why? And also afraid. Why? Because he's Jesus. They're like, oh my god, <laughs> we're walking with Jesus. <laughs> Holy shit, you guys. Sometimes they just, like, realize yeah, it. So maybe, like, maybe, maybe he was sort of, like, brooding, and that, you know, shit, I've got this great welling of prophecy in me about this thing that's about to happen to me, and so I'm, I'm feeling really dark. And they were like, he had to go to his lonely place. Whoa! <laughs> just like Chris Angel at this time. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. Oh. <laughs> On the third person thing, I swear, um, in a Bart Ehrman book, I don't know if I'm remembering it right, but I think he said that, um, originally, 
when Jesus talked about the Son of Man, he wasn't even talking about himself. Really? Um, but I might have that completely wrong. But it is weird that <clears throat> the only – I think you noted, and I, I looked it up, and it's mostly true. The only places he talks about the Son of Man is on these passion predictions, is which, it? I mean, might have might be slightly later than you know his ministry stuff. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, – I actually didn't get to go back and look too much into it. But I was like, wow, every time he starts talking about this, it seems to be... Like, it it does seem like it could have been a later edition, oh. easily. Yeah, no, wait, yeah. I mean that this comes before the... Oh, wait, no, because it isn't. Because eventually we get to it, and Jesus does what he says the Son of Man is going to do. So it really can't be a third person. It can be, if there's one separate layer of oral tradition where Jesus says yeah. things... And then another separate layer of Markin narrative where he layers on. But, you, you know, you you make a good point, though. The the prophecies of what the Son of Man has to do fit too closely in the Markin narrative of what Jesus does mm-hmm. uh, to make yeah. to make it seem like it's anything else. You know, I, I'm going to say it's all Markin. The whole, the passion narrative. And, well, you know what? Delete all this. <laughs> Producer, oh, del- delete all this stuff. Uh, I'm not making sense. <laughs> no, because there's that thing later where I noticed that um, the synoptics get a little more synoptical when the passion narrative, when he gets to Jerusalem. Oh, to- totally. <laughs> they, totally. To they converge. Like, once he's the, yeah. around the triumphal entry or so, the synoptics get a lot more synoptic. And I think that's because the oldest tradition of all is the passion play. That's the original oh, tradition. Oh, really? think it's the oldest? Of the narratives about Jesus' life, yeah. That I think I think the first layer of tradition is Paul's Christology, in the in the Pauline epistles, like Jesus was crucified for our sins. And yeah, the first the first bit of myth to be weaved around that that like it's like what I would call devotional fiction in Mardell's. The first part where they flesh it out biographically, is the Passion narrative. So Paul just has this like this really mythical, uh, mystic. Uh, Un, not not biographically rooted character of of a Christ who's crucified, but then the first attempt to to biographize or realize or actualize that figure in narrative is the Passion Play, and then and then that's the oldest I think layer of. I don't think there's anything really controversial. I think biblical scholars agree that the oldest layer of the Synoptics is the Passion. So that's why it's all standardized because. The, the gospel authors kind of had it as a chunk. And then, like, the sayings and, like, the narrative of his ministry got added to that. But, so, they are more random. Well, I, I, it's impossible that the sayings were floating around as a separate, like, a totally separate set of traditions. Like, there mm-hmm. was this passion narrative that's floating around in some communities. And then in other uh, proto-Christian communities, there's these sayings gospels floating around that don't have narrative in them at all. That's just sayings mm-hmm. of Jesus. And that later on they get fused in, in places like Mark and then Matthew and Luke. Well, yeah, I mean, in your little beginnings of your cult, your, the martyrdom of your Messiah would be pretty important. Yeah, assuming he's a historical figure, yeah. Yeah. But what if there was, like, one guy that got crucified and was, you know, kind of a, a, like a faith healer exorcist type, but then there's another guy that went around teaching profound things and that those two people got fused together in the later narratives. I mean, there's just no way to know how many actual historical people are behind this. 
It could be anywhere from zero to twelve. <laughs> we just don't have enough good source material to suss it out. I, I I disagree with the the third quest that we can actually suss this shit out. I just don't think yeah. it's going to be done. Or the the Jesus seminars. Yeah, the next brick B is the triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem. Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. <laughs> and as Paul points out, in Matthew, he gets both a donkey and a colt, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in Mark, it's just the Lord has need of it, as in it, as in just the donkey. Uh, but in Matthew, it's not the Lord has need of it, it's the Lord has need of them. As in the donkey and the colt. This mm-hmm. is this is one of those ones that like just makes no sense at all unless you realize that Matthew has has once again, true to form, brought in a whole bunch of uh, Old Testament uh, verses, and he says, "Look, this is to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah sixty-two. Excuse me, from no, uh, no, Zechariah. Zechariah nine. Zechariah nine nine. Um." Nine nine nine. Nine nine nine. <laughs> Zachary, nine nine nine. Everybody gets nine donkeys. <laughs> well well no, in Matthew he just had one he had one foot on the colt and one foot on the ass. He was just standing up riding him in town. It doesn't say that he's doing that, like rodeo it's style. Like That'd be totally cool though. <laughs> it, it, that's <laughs> badass, but it actually says he's sitting it's on the cult. triumphal entry. <laughs> the, the badass rodeo style triumphal entry. It actually says that he's sitting on coats. He's sitting on coats to go across both the donkey and the and the colt. <laughs> I guess Jesus could do the splits. So he's flexible. Now wait, wait, so, wait. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No. I just wanted to say that, like, for those who like to be literalist about the Bible, it it helps that Matthew also likes to be super literalist about the Old Testament. And he takes <laughs> yeah. he takes Zechariah nine nine to be oh yeah a donkey and a colt. It's not just poetic repetition in Zechariah, like like those Hebrews are apt to do that poetic repetition thing. No, no, it's a donkey and yes, verily a colt as well. So that that is a hilarious uh, misconstrual of the Old Testament by one of the New Testament writers, which <laughs> which says to me, not inspired by the wisest possible Hebrew scholar, much less the Lord of all the creation. Yeah, that's I, one of my favorite um, goofs. I don't yeah. know. That is one of the most hilariously glaring goofs because it would make for a good editorial cartoon. You could draw it up. Here's Jesus, like one foot's one foot's riding a bit higher than the other because. The... <laughs> I just I just like the and Mark Jesus he just tells them to go steal shit. But he gives them an excuse. He says, "Now tell them <laughs> it's for the Lord," and they'll be like, "Oh, cool, it's for the Lord." Oh well, sweet oh, then. Well, have course. my house. Yeah. Have my child. Go ahead, take my ass. <laughs> you say you want to tap that? So, uh, doesn't Matthew do this a lot? Though? I mean, not just the Old Testament, but he makes things too a lot. Uh, in one of the stories, uh, Mark and Luke have a, a single blind man mm. who wants to be healed by Jesus, and Matthew makes it two old men, two mm-hmm. old blind men want to be healed. Yeah, that was just weird. That was just a little bit ago. Right, but then he also did that whole legion thing. Didn't he make the um, that one person who was uh, that was uh, possessed into two people who were possessed by legion? Yeah, and Matthew made it too. My God, you're right. Weird. Wow. Is he just like one upping him? Like Jesus healed one person, I can make Jesus heal twice as many. It's just one big finger to Mark and Luke. You say you say that Jesus rose from the grave. I say he rose from two graves. 
<laughs> they cut him in half. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, I do have another point to make on this prick, P, like a real actual Bible scholar point. And it is this. Mark mentions, quote, the coming kingdom of our father David in this. Do you notice that? Mm-hmm. And do you notice that sounds how... like the Old Testament. Huh? That sounds like the Old Testament. They're always, they're wanting the the new Davidic kingdom. Yeah, that's what they want. They are they are looking forward to the new Davidic kingdom. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That part's a quote from the Old Testament. But then, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That just sounds like something like Mark is reporting from on the scene. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So let's assume just for the moment that historically people were actually chanting that as Jesus comes into the city, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that explains why the Romans crucified the dude. Because <laughs> the coming oh. kingdom of our father David, that's like a new Israeli kingdom to supplant those Roman overlords who are occupying oh the land. And suddenly the whole, like, Jesus being crucified thing makes sense in light of Mark 11.10. But Luke and Matthew living in a later time of heavier Roman persecution conveniently leave that part out. There's, they just completely redact that out of the record. Oh, there's nothing about a kingdom of David coming up. No, no, this is all spiritual. And I thought that was strongly indicative that uh, Matthew and Luke have uh, an agenda here to to take out bits of the record from Mark that are too, um, say, anti-Roman. And this isn't the first time I brought this up either. I brought this up in the previous two or three podcasts where Mark says something that's vaguely anti-Roman, like about the Herodians or something, and Matthew and Luke are like, eh, no, we're going to redact that one out it's not gonna have that so but but the point is that in mark like it's clear why the romans want to crucify this guy but in matthew and luke they just they cut that bit out about the kingdom of david coming back and that to me was fascinating well yeah that's i think the herod's come up again i was watching for that but i couldn't remember which way it went well that's all i have on that i just thought i thought it was interesting that's okay cool also, wait, wait. Also, uh, Luke bring, brings in the Pharisees at the very end, mm-hmm. and the Pharisees uh, ask ask um, Jesus to rebuke his disciples who who are shouting, "Blessed is the King!" But Jesus says, "I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out." Yeah, that was kind of weird. Said, yeah, I know, but that's another way of of sticking to the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> It's, um, minor that's thing. that's what I would call L material. That's one source material, only an L. Oh, really? It doesn't exist anywhere else. Luke's like got that one on his own. He's out there on his own on that one. Just a quick thing about Matthew. He actually combines Isaiah six eleven and and then the Zechariah nine 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 quote <laughs> um, without like citing. He just like it's like they mish them, mash them all together. It's not very scholarly. They should use MLA. Yeah, what the hell? Well, it's not exactly like they oh, had, oh, you know, format. laptops or anything back then to keep oh. it all they nice well, Yeah, they didn't, they didn't have verse numbers or anything. Well, they couldn't even keep track when Jesus starts naming off commandments and, like, subs one in that's not in the Old Testament at all. <laughs> like, what? Thou, thou shalt not defraud? I don't remember that. What are you talking about? What's that? Oh. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, go Everyone's your... literate. <laughs> It's not like they're going to whip out a massive scroll from within their, like, cloak and be like, ha-ha, let me just search through this for a second and prove you wrong. Scrollopedia? 
good to keep that in mind that most the audience for these books were actually illiterate, so people could just read what they wanted. Yep, pretty much. Two people. They could choose what to read. Lucky like, for us, most Americans don't actually read the Bible, so it's a comparable it's cultural milieu. They're help. just as ignorant. Yeah. Case in point. <laughs> the Catholics are trying to maintain this by speaking a lot of, a lot of Latin. <laughs> <laughs> hey now, they've, they've, they've started doing the Mass in English for 30 years now. The whole time you've been alive. Uh, you guys ready to move on to the next pericope, which is actually the next one, 65? Yeah, yeah. All right, who said we should do that next one? The cleansing the temple. Me. Abby, tell Hi. us about this. Yo, ten. Um, First of all, what are okay. all those weird symbols you put in the document? What is that? Is that just cursing? Huh? <laughs> Wait, what? Is it, what's it, what does it look like to you? Luke omits the famous parentheses, squiggle, circle, square, see? circle, squiggle. <laughs> oh. What do you see, Paul? He's tossing over some table. He's tossing over a table. He's flipping a table, man. Wait, there's a person in there? I thought you... You see the eyes and the face, and he's flipping up his arms, and there's a table, and it's upside down? Oh my god! Is that what that is? Really? Yes. Yes. Is Is his mouth a giant square? (laughs) Yes. I don't understand what the, the little... The second... Right before the table, the little bow, I don't understand what that's demonstrating is like the motion oh it's a yeah, motion. yeah it's it's that okay. the table has flipped and it's gone okay. it's followed that arc where oh, okay. the hell did that come from <laughs> i saw one of your friend your your friend yeah Paul. Paul, yeah Paul yeah sorry doing that back and forth yeah goddamn twitter you you youngins and your tweeters <laughs> the hell is that twittering so that's a little icon dude flipping a table over is what that is I don't know why it existed, but it's perfect for this contest. Okay. Thank God. Thank God someone explained that. I was like, what the f*** is going on here? I laughed quite loudly. When okay. All right. Go, go on, Abby. Go back to the actual... Tell us what this is. Um, okay, this is the famous scene where there's money lenders inside the temple. And so Jesus flips shit out and does that stuff. So flipping the table, which is why I include that. And the one thing I noticed um, was that Luke eliminates all the the table flipping business. Yeah, he eliminates almost everything. Yeah, well, all he says is, "In okay, Luke says, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, blah blah blah." So basically, (laughs) he's just saying stuff. It doesn't say anything about him making a scene, or he's just like using his power of. Persuasion, persuasion. <laughs> yeah, to to drive them out. Which um, I wouldn't have really noticed it, but I've been reading the Ertman book, and Luke apparently is a very Luke's Jesus is a very like cool dude. Mm. He's very calm, and he never like gets emotional. He's like, um, dude, you've pierced my side with a spear. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> But I guess there's a lot. Any instance in Mark where um, Jesus gets angry, Luke takes out. Is that right? It makes sense to me. I think that is right, but I, I'm not going to go back and look at all the instances right now. Yeah, but what I mean, book is that by Misquoting Jesus. Yeah, okay. yeah, which I'm really enjoying. It's good to right. see you're finally getting into the New Testament in some way. Oh, yeah. 
I yeah. I, well, I'd read another Ehrman book, but this one's a little more like fundamental. I'd read Jesus Interrupted, which is good. But when you say fundamental, you mean like like down, back to basics in terms of like New Testament yeah, criticism. Like, yeah, it's like the core, like it's core issue of scriptural. I mean, all the different manuscripts. Jesus Interrupted is more like um, I think about the historical Jesus. I don't really remember. So all right. So what about this brick piece? Yeah, stand out. Also, this in here is where we first get the fig tree, right? Yes. At the beginning of it? Yeah, Mark has it well, in the beginning. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it. yeah. It depends on which version you read. Yeah, in different orders. God hates things. I, I think that this is, a, as God far as things. biblical inerrantists go, this is one of the hardest contradictions of all. Because it, it plainly states in one of the Gospels that, that first he curses the fig tree, and then later on he goes and curses the money changers and drives them out of the temple. But in, in the, uh, one of the other synoptic Gospels, it goes in exactly the opposite order. So uh. if you're an apologist trying to make this all make sense, you have to say something wacky like there were two fig trees and Jesus cursed them both. And one of them withered instantly and the other one withered overnight. You know, you have to make up some wacky shit like that. Because it's it's pretty clear if you try to make Matthew and Mark agree on this, you end up with a lot of extra fig trees. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, like, he drives people out of the temple twice. So who knows? You've got to double up on something. So I uh, those those Christian listeners out there, and you know who you are, I challenge you to go ahead and have this one. Give, give a go to this one. Mark 11, 11 through 17. See if you can make that agree with the synoptic parallels. Well, maybe Jesus, Jesus had he'd been... Every time he tried to explain something to his disciples, they didn't get it. So now he's just said, okay, maybe if I just do the same thing over and over, they'll start to understand. Surely they will get so, it. If enough fig trees die, yeah. they will get the message. Yeah. So I think <laughs> he just fig tree? twice. I'm the message here is that if fig trees aren't bearing fruit out of season, then f*** those f- Why aren't yeah. they bearing fruit out of season? Because <laughs> yeah, there's not enough global warming. <laughs> it was in Mark, wasn't it, where he actually has a notation like, oh yeah, by the way, this isn't the normal season in which fig trees have fruit, but Jesus doesn't really give a shit. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. God damn. Oh wait, no, I'm wrong. I have something more to say about this pericope. I have one more thing to say. Like, those money changers were absolutely necessary. They were They were absolutely necessary to be there. Like, Jesus is just being a dick here. Yes, people are coming from all over the empire, all over the empire, to, like, make their temple sacrifices. And they don't all have the native currency, okay? These Jews, these are diaspora Jews coming from all over to, to make their, like, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to finally, like, make their sacrifice in the great temple. They've traveled a very long way, and they need to change the currency of whatever country they came from into the currency that's useful here in Jerusalem, and then buy some doves to sacrifice in the temple. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that, out of your ass all that's of a sudden, sacrifice? That, that is an actual problem. Nobody ever walks 300 miles and takes their own doves with them. Try doing that sometime. That's bullshit. hungry and eat them. You bring some, some currency with you, and you exchange it when you get there. This is a useful, like, temple-related trade. It needed to be done. And Jesus is just being a cock, blocking it. <laughs> Can I just, I just throw that out there? You try using, like, Tarshish currency to buy doves in Jerusalem. 
I'm sure lots just had like gold or like stuff to barter with. I don't know how many, you know, and what the state of the state of money was in those days. Never mind. You try buying thinking, roast thinking. duck with euros in Oklahoma City. <laughs> it's not that easy to do. Okay, okay. So we're starting in on that's it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This who, is actually the lesson of who, the fig tree part two. Who threw yes. up this lesson of the withered fig tree? Who's that? Was me. Okay, tell us about it. Um, it is Mark eleven twenty through twenty six. Basically, to me reading it, I thought the lesson didn't really tie into what the fig tree, like what actually happened to the fig tree. Like I didn't get that. But basically, the lesson is told that it's you can do whatever you want by faith. Like, duh! Obviously, I can make a fig tree wither. Because you can only do whatever you want if it's incredibly destructive, like killing trees or destroying mountains. Yeah. You can't which, do like which... positive things by faith, only incredibly destructive things. As a side note, I would be much more impressed by a fig tree growing fruit out of season overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that would have been badass. Dying. I can kill a fig tree. But yeah, that's like I said, like the magical power of herbicide. Wow. You know, that's right. that's gonna get you on the super best friends right there. You've got the power of herbicide. I killed my cactus in like two weeks. So <laughs> I must have faith. But yeah, so that that was the the main thing was that one. I wasn't sure that this was such a great example of what you can accomplish by faith, and two, I'm not really sure how what you can accomplish by faith actually ties into what happened. Because the way I understood what happened to the fig tree was Jesus was just being a, I, a vengeful prick. It didn't make a lot yeah. of sense. Okay. Yeah. Being an asshole. Jesus was just like, what the f is wrong with this fig tree? Doesn't it know damn figs? I'm hungry. Yeah. So I, I don't understand how this lesson actually came from that incident. But maybe it wasn't originally related and they just got like crammed together. One time, I saw a toddler throwing a fit over uh, not getting Fig Newtons. This is in Crest. This is a grocery store we have out here at Crest. This this three-year-old was throwing a fit over Fig Newtons, and, of course, naturally, I thought of Jesus. <laughs> you know, Abby, your, your point kind of makes the apologists have to do quite a radical dance. If there is two fig trees, and then also this was two different incidents of fig trees like this is completely <laughs> separate i mean there's just all kinds of fig trees apparently <laughs> and jesus is interacting with them on well later on there's a parable of fig trees so apparently fig trees are just a huge oh, recurring God. theme that makes perfect sense <laughs> luke leaves actually luke leaves both these fig stories out that's because god hates figs yeah well i think I, I think it plays into the whole thing about Jesus being the fonds. I think so too. <laughs> Luke just is that how is that how Ehrman worded it? No. Jesus Wait, no. The fonds isn't. The fonds isn't cool. Being like, oh, oh, like um, Gus, Gus Fring on Breaking Bad. That's Jesus. Oh, he is. He's totally Mr. Cassius. Wow, that's a little oh, bit. So you're not saying Jesus could just smack a fig tree and it would grow figs all of a sudden? Well, it's not perfect because. She's never mind. Um, but Luke so, does leave him out. So Jesus lies here whenever he says that it, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Yeah, that would explain why all those Christians never have to go to oncologists. Oh wait, <laughs> they still go to oncologists. 
Never mind. Yeah, I take that back. I didn't get all that shit I prayed for. Well, they're not truly believing. Apparently, none of them are. Yeah. There would have been some recorded, reported cases yeah, of Christians I... not having to get their cancer cured by doctors. <laughs> are, are we done with the fig tree, Paul? Did we have anything else? Sure. <laughs> I don't have anything. Okay, I'm going to stop the fig tree. I'm sorry about this digression. So, I guess I've, I've, this is a motif that I keep picking out that these, uh, where people come to Jesus and ask him tricky questions. <laughs> that does happen a lot. It's gotcha journalism. <laughs> That's a journalism. That's fantastic. <laughs> They're like, "Hey, what if she has seven husbands, huh? What then?" So they they ask him, "By what authority are you doing these things to Jesus?" And uh, Jesus knows oh, this is a trick question here. He says, "I will ask you one question, you answer me, then and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things." Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. So they didn't want to say from heaven because because they knew that he would just say, "Then why do you not?" Why do you not believe him? Because, you know, I guess John is... Well, yeah, John, John anointed him the, the the son of God, right? Yeah, uh, no, not the son of God, the Christ. Uh, wait, wait, wait. The prophet. No, ah. Uh, John didn't say oh, yeah. anything. That was a voice from heaven. Uh, Remember? This is my beloved this son. My beloved Listen, son. To him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. The dove. Yeah, correct. <laughs> So they didn't want to say that, and then they said they didn't want to say that he was from men because then they would be uh, the, these because then that would be discounting John, and the people all thought that John was a prophet from the Lord. So, so they had to answer, "We don't know." And then Jesus was like, "Well, then why do you, are you bothering asking me?" <laughs> Jesus being a politician, damn good one, and all of them agree. All, all the. Um, Synoptic Gospels agree with one another. From what I can tell, did you guys see any differences? Is, is this in Luke? Uh, yeah, Luke twenty one through eight. Yeah, cool. So I I, I know why I picked these these questions because I Jesus he he's just a a good just great with words, and so that's why everyone gloms all of this this power and majesty to him is that he's able to sidestep all of these tricky questions that other people have a hard time with. I mean, that would be a difficult question if Jesus actually had to, if if um, if you had to keep thinking. Well, there are only two answers, but actually both of them are incorrect, and I need to. I I thought this one was like, it, it had the feel to me. Uh, this one and one of the other ones where there's tricky question stuff, uh, f- had the feel to me of an actual rabbi, like actually having a, a rhetorical dispute with other uh, rabbis and Pharisees about you know, the Torah and like mm. current philosophical disputes in first century Judea. You know, like the one yeah, about the resurrection uh, yeah. felt like a real philosophical first century Judean dispute between Sadducees and Pharisees. And this one also, this one that Chaz brought up here, where he says, he goes back to the baptism of John, says, was that from heaven or was that from man? That feels like a real thing that rabbis would argue about in first century Judea. It feels, to me, and this is intuitive, not scholarly, it feels really genuine. Like, this could have been a real rabbi saying mm-hmm. this stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a debate between sects. Yes, yes. Between, between well, essentially Pharisees and other kinds of Pharisees. Like, Jesus was closer to the Pharisees than anyone generally realizes. He, I mean, he was essentially, a, you know, a rabbi with doctrines. A lot, a lot. Like, for example, with the Sadducees-Pharisees question on the resurrection, Jesus sides firmly with the Pharisees on that one. And then the, the resurrection exists... Yeah, he says that, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Anyway, um, 
I, I don't know. I just thought, I thought that this one was one of the examples of the one of the ones that felt really like not like a later like layering on that's concerned with the theological uh, disputes in the second century church, but like concerned more with the right. But this feels like more like the first three uh, decades of the first century Judea kind of stuff. Mm. Mm. All the debates they were in the the Orthodox Church we got was just one that happened to win. Right. Well, they, they didn't happen to win. They were also they, ruthless they... about it. They. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's kind of like saying the neocons just happened to win the foreign policy debate. Well, I mean, you've got to be yeah. ruthlessly pursuing your goals to to happen to win out in a fight like that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a but, maybe but, a bad mix. No, but if they win and they like say they change all the textbooks to reflect their ideology, and then we'd be like. Okay, this is what they say, but it's just because they happen to win. It'd say something else if someone else won, and like the truth doesn't matter. Wait, that's really postmodern. Never mind. <laughs> you know that postmodernism is not allowed in this podcast. I've made that clear before. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> what authority? Uh, where are we now? Are we in? A... Okay, seventy. Who who put on seventy? I did. Tell us about it. I know, um, let me get to it. I had 69 up. Alright. <laughs> Why did anyone have 69 up? Did! I've gotta put up my little emoticon for I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I don't wanna do, I don't wanna do this one anymore. Ah! <laughs> but we've got well, a half an hour left. It's, Come it's on. the same trippy question. It's the same, just the tricky, ooh, you, you're gonna catch him. I don't wanna do it anymore. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, well, welcome, it's I'm the, just going to attack this one on to 68 and say that, like, again, G- Rabbi Jesus wins, like, in the rhetorical battle department. It's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a famous render unto Caesar line. Right. That's it, the only reason I had it on there. It is famous, but it's also, like, a really clever way that he turns the tables on his interlocutors. They're like, you know, should we pay taxes to Rome? And they're thinking if he says yes, then he's not really... Uh, the Messiah, because the Messiah is supposed to raise up against Rome and free the Jewish people. Oh, yeah. But if he says no, then he's a rebel and we can have him crucified. So they think they've got this perfect trap laid out for him. And he does this really clever, like, well, whose face is out on the coins? Mm. And, well, give the coins to the guy whose face is on them. And give to God what is God's. And the clever thing about that is that everything is God's. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a wonderfully uh, obfuscatory kind of rabbinical. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's a good answer. It's a really clever word game. And I suspect that there's an actual clever rabbi behind it and not just Mark here. Mm-hmm. In another way, it, it it jives with his feelings of give away all your worldly possessions. It's like, don't worry about paying taxes. Who cares? Ooh. Give it away anyways. Good point. It's it's not uh, a big priority for the the guy who just goes around unshod and staveless from place to place. <laughs> Anyone else have any comments on 70 before we move on to the next one? The next one is 74, which Damien picked. So he'll have to account for it. Where is that guy? Hold on a second. The next pericope that we've selected to discuss is Mark 12, 37 through 40, and parallels in Matthew and Luke, which is titled here, Woe unto scribes and Pharisees. I, I gotta say, this one's really not 
parallel in the way that I thought it was when I linked it in. You guys noticed that about how? Yeah, the Mark has this material, and then Matthew has way, way, way more material. He's like eight woes upon the Pharisees. Woe to you, Boring scribes! Material. Woe to you, mm-hmm. scribes and Pharisees, for your hypocritical assholes. And then he does these like eight different ways in which they're hypocritical assholes. Yeah, and Luke has a bunch of stuff too. Oh really? Because I I only got Luke twenty forty five through forty seven. What else did you have in there? Oh shoot, where'd it go? Um, I lost track. Well, what verse did it start with? In Luke. In Mark. In Mark. In Mark, I've got Mark twelve thirty seven through forty for this one. Okay, there's Luke stuff in twenty forty five. Beware the scribes who like to go about long ropes. Um, but then there's a bunch of links, and there's like there's links in parentheses, and I don't really know. It goes to 11:37, and there's stuff with Pharisees. Um, but it's a parallel, though. I don't know. Um, it might be. I don't know. The part well, from 45 for to 40, <laughs> The other part is very parallel. It's about how the Pharisees they like to walk around and be respectfully greeted in the marketplaces and the public spheres um this this i've got a couple comments on this first of all this sounds like the i'm just gonna say it sounds like they're (laughs) they like to be respectfully (laughs) greeted in the prosperous like public places they um they prey upon uh, predatory lending and they they (laughs) they they foreclose on widows houses uh, and for appearances' sake, they offered long prayers, like Rick Perry's prayer rally in Texas, how he kicked off his campaign. And uh, these will receive the greatest condemnation. That's and this is spoken as an independent who's never really been affiliated with either party. But this it feels to me like Jesus is definitely doing some class warfare against the rich here. <laughs> but I did want to bring up uh, something really cool here in this section called the Mathean Riddle. Did, did you guys hear about the Mathean Riddle? Did you get to see that? I looked it up briefly. And the idea here is how is the Gospel of Matthew so very it's such a Jewish gospel, it has so much uh Hebrew scripture in it, it has so much Jewish material in it, and it assumes that the reader has a familiarity with the Hebrew scriptures, right? So in mm-hmm. a sense the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish gospel, it's written for a Jewish audience. But at the same time the Gospel of Matthew is so anti Semitic in places that you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why is Matthew so virulently anti-Semitic, and I think we can we can riddle this out here in Matthew twenty-three, where Matthew he layers on all these all these curses on the Pharisees and scribes uh, after the parallel material to Mark here, and I think what's happening here is that Matthew cares a lot about Judaism, and he feels like the one right way for Judaism to go is to become the Jews for Jesus movement. Like, that's what they're supposed to do now. <laughs> like, he cares about the Jews, and he feels like they are the people that are supposed to convert to Christianity first and foremost. And so that's why he goes just absolutely off on them in Matthew twenty three thirteen and following, because he really, really, really wants them to convert to Christianity right now. And he's really upset <laughs> that the Pharisees, who are a lot like Jesus in their rabbinical purity movement, uh, are not making the jump to Christianity. And so, hence, all the invective heaped upon them. Because he, because he's writing for Jews, he's the most upset with them for not converting yeah. en masse to the new religion. Because you're always worried about the people who are closest to you, but just different enough. Right, right. It's like how like, 
Church of Christ are most upset with the Church of Christ people who are also Church of Christ, but they like to play instruments. They're the same denomination, but they're very slightly different doctrine. They're totally going to hell. They don't care what, like, the Baptists do, because they they know they're going to hell. Yeah, all the Catholics are going to hell anyway, but... But they have to, like, justify against the people who are just a little bit different. Right, exactly. The doctrinal splits are most fierce among those who are within the the sect right there. This liberal Church of Christ needs PowerPoint. Yeah, that's 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 clearly the work of the devil, as we mentioned earlier. Just there's there's no doubt in my mind that PowerPoint is of Satan, and this is from someone who does it for a living. It's because Bill Gates is a heathen. So that's all I have on on seventy four. It was just a, a fun little series of curses. Let's let's do the next one. All right, tell us about it. Oh wow. Um. Ah, the desolate sacrilege. AKA. The Abomination of Desolation, which is how I was taught it. So this is where, um, this is where the, as we mentioned, the the Synoptic Gospels tend to match more from this point on. Because this is, he starts getting kind of like apocalyptic, and it leads right into his, um, passion stuff. Totally. So, but what, but what are these, (laughs) what are the dire predictions about? Like, what's, what's Christ prophesying here? Ah, right, okay, here it is. Um, well, it's all this, it's like the first, like, apocalyptic stuff in the New Testament, right? Really, like, explicitly, like, he's laying out what's going to happen at the end of days. Mm-hmm. The end of days being that. around 70 AD in this case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what's happening here in, in Mark 13 is... It's sort of a prophecy about the Roman legions marching on Jerusalem and and then the Christians being persecuted thereafter. Like both things that happened around when Mark was writing. So like it, it seems to me like Mark is writing about stuff that's very fresh in his memory. Christians being persecuted and the temple being destroyed. I mean the abomination yeah. of desolation it means one thing in the book of Daniel. It means, you know, a foreign king sacrificing to foreign gods on the temple altar. But I think here in the in the Gospels it means, you know, the Roman banner. What is I forget what the Roman banner said. Like SBQR. Thank you. The Roman banner is flying, you know, over the temple uh, as as they're conquering Jerusalem. That's my take on what this abomination is. Because I don't think uh, the Romans are going to just up and sacrifice a pig. <laughs> but that would rule if they did. That would be <laughs> quite the poke in the eye if they'd have gone that far just to. <laughs> Yeah, thirteen fourteen is where it actually mentions this desolating sacrilege or whatever the translation um, that descends on Jerusalem. So there's the end of the world stuff, and then there's the end of Jerusalem stuff. And it's all the same thing, though, isn't it? I mean, like if Jerusalem's ending, then clearly the world is yeah. not long for this world. It's interesting that um, in Luke twenty one twenty is the parallel. Um, he changes desolating sacrilege into Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Make it obvious, I guess. Yeah, it does kind of, uh. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of. Yeah, wink, wink, judge, judge, Romans. It's, uh, yeah, it's a lot <laughs> less uh, spiritual when you, when you put it in those terms. And then he specifies that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles. At least until the time of the Gentiles is over. I guess it's like Middle Earth, each, each race gets their time to be on top. <laughs> That's not just like Middle Earth, that's like the history of Europe. 
It's also well, it's like prophesied, you know. The age of men. The time of the elves is over. Yeah. <laughs> the time of the Spaniards is over. The time of the English has come. <laughs> the time of the Portuguese is over. <laughs> the time of the Greeks is over. I mean, like, who hasn't had a go at empire? I mean, I guess the Belgians. <laughs> <laughs> the Romanians? No, no, they're descended from the Romans. That's hence the name. <laughs> I'm serious. They claim, like, straight-up Latin descent. Not Latino, the, but Latin. The Swedes? Luxembourgese. The Cambodians? <laughs> Can I just say about about this pericope, Mark, basically all of Mark 13, not all of them, Mark 13 and 1 through 20, is that this, mm-hmm. this was, re- like you said, really, really synoptic. Like, it, it felt like whole huge blocks of text were being lifted out of Mark for the first time. Yeah. Uh, in all of our reading, in all of our reading of Mark, this is the first time that twenty consecutive verses get pretty much lifted, more or less verbatim, by the other Gospels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that struck me, like having gone through thirteen chapters of Mark or twelve, but prior to this, and you get to this one, and you're like, whoa, huge chunks just being lifted straight from Mark. And I think we're going to see more of that. I'm confident we're, we see more of that as going into the um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and then the Passion. Uh, it it, com- it all comes closer together as as we're getting into the older, what I consider the older material, the Passion material. Matthew Luke being lazy, <laughs> or or it could be editorial fatigue. That could be the, another hypothesis here. At this point, they're just like, oh God, screw this, I'm done. <laughs> I'm getting near the end of my scroll here. I'm just going to copy out. I mean, they still make changes, but it's it's like the lines here and there, and they, um, the parable of the pounds is expanded. The what? Mark's thirteen thirty three. There's another parable, and Luke and Matthew, um, they oh. must have a dual tradition. Can I add on that that parable? Can I? I mean, since we have fifteen minutes left, can I add on that uh, pericope seventy nine oh, yeah. to the end of what we're gonna do tonight? It's it's the parable of the talents in um, in my version. I think pounds is a bit Anglo-centric. Oh yeah. As translations go. KG KJV. I'm pretty sure it's talents in the KJV, which is why I named Pericope seventy nine as the parable of the talented slaves. Oh, I get it. Yeah, because they're talented. They were given <laughs> talents. Uh-huh. And so what what happens in in this last uh, pericope is that God is a usurious, plutocratic bastard who demands <laughs> massive profits from his slaves. So God is the 1%. He's totally like, why didn't you make me a massive profit from that five talents I gave you? Uh, which is not Mark. It's not what happens in, in Mark thirteen thirty three th- through thirty seven. It's just be alert, be alert for the coming Son of Man, or not Son of Man for the. It's potentially you guys. Yeah, it's it's Mark thirteen thirty three through thirty seven is a very straightforward sort of parable, but then Matthew and Luke have this whole story about a nobleman giving his slaves money to, I don't know, invest in. Uh, Solyndra or something, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they, what they invested in back then. And so that way, when, when he comes home, the master comes home, he can say, well done, good and faithful slave. And, you know, 
and yay. Halliburton. Yeah. And and so the there's this is really kind of Q material because Matthew and Luke have this massively expanded thing that's not in Mark. It's two source material. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting two source material because like seriously, like this is this is a good lesson uh to learn that <laughs> that, that God is a, a usurious master who just beats his slaves and tells them to make more money for him. It's just, I mean, sign me up, sign me up for this kingdom I have. And this sounds great. You know, who wouldn't want to be a, a slave? And just, but yeah. He just gets angry because they didn't invest it. Right. Well, the, he gets, he gets angry at the last one who, who didn't invest at all. He just like buried it or something. Oh, he well, penny saved, a penny earned. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> He's so like, he didn't speculating. So, like, the slave at the end gives his one talent back to the master and says, you know, here's the one that you gave me. And he's like, you lazy, wicked slave. You should have known that I'm a total hard ass. They're going to spend it. God. So, what you should have done is, like, create a credit default swap on this talent. <laughs> and then, like, do a derivative... Own. Yeah, I should have done something on the future value of this. I don't know. It's just. It's just... Why didn't you put this into Microsoft? Crash the Jerusalem economy. It is. It's... <laughs> yes. How did you not start a Ponzi scheme? Basically, what I'm saying is that Matthew twenty five fourteen is what wrecked our economy. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Matthew twenty five is is the parable that led to massive, uh, excessive. Um, failure to uh, mitigate risks at uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. They were reading Matthew 25. This is just what happens when the Romans don't, uh, don't regulate. It's what happens when your boss demands a 200% return. You invest in risky, risky shit. Mm. Your boss is a dick. Okay. And then you make sure the government now will be like, yeah. Okay, maybe... Then he sends you to hell for it. Maybe this wasn't as insightful as I thought it would be. <laughs> Still, I was like, holy shit, seriously? 200% return? Who wants that? Do you have any idea how risky you have to be to get 200% return in that short of time? That is total bullshit. Sign me up. Okay. I'm going to go watch Dexter. Hold on, I'm going to close out the show. All right, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Uh, on behalf of the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, this is Damien. And this is Paul. Abby. Oh. Jason. <laughs> Jazz! Abby again. With our powers combined. <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> Tune in next week for the gripping conclusion of the Synoptic Gospels. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies. <laughs>